0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 5. Last time, we left off with the expansion of Carthage into the central and western Mediterranean. We discussed how Carthage gained territory throughout North Africa, Sardinia, Corsica, the Balearic Islands, along the southern coast of Spain, and in western Sicily, through the judicious use of trade influence, cultural bonds, farsighted diplomacy, and concentrated military force. We also saw how the Carthaginian navy turned the western Mediterranean into a virtual Punic Sea by enforcing peace and security and trade operations, and how great explorers such as Himilco and Hanno the Navigator expanded Carthage's reach into the Atlantic Ocean. Today, we turn our attention back to the Mediterranean, specifically to the enigmatic island of Sicily. I had originally intended to cover all of the Sicilian Wars in this episode, but I think that in order to follow Carthage's activities in Sicily, we first need to discuss the background of Sicily and the Greek world surrounding it. So, in this episode, we will be primarily talking about the Greeks and their influence in Sicily, setting the stage for the struggles between Carthage and Syracuse to come. If you have a chance to look at a map of Sicily, Greece, and Italy, it would probably be helpful before we continue. For starters, Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean, being almost exactly 10,000 square miles in size. It is triangular in shape, which is why it was given its ancient nickname, Trinacria. It is also the reason why the ancient Greek symbol for Syracuse was the Triscilian, three concentric legs centered around a stylized head of Medusa. The Greek monster who had snakes for hair. The terrain in Sicily is mostly hilly and mountainous, with several substantial mountain ranges, including the Madoni and Nebrodi ranges in the northeast of the island. Sicily also has a large number of active volcanoes, with the fame Mount Etna, the largest active volcano in Europe, casting its shadow over the southeastern portion of the island. Mount Etna has been active since the time of the Greeks. And in Greek mythology, the god Hephaestus, god of smiths and metalworking, had his forge on the slopes of Etna. Due to this volcanic activity, the soil in Sicily is extremely fertile and has been extensively cultivated since ancient times. The olive and the vine have been grown in Sicily since the Greeks first introduced them in the early 12th century BC, while the island produced so much grain and wheat in antiquity that it was often called the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. Besides these advantages in natural resources, Sicily is geographically directly in the center of the Mediterranean. Blessed with a superb strategic position between Italy, North Africa, Greece, and Spain, it has for centuries been the crossroads of the empires that have fought and traded over the Mediterranean Sea. With a vital strategic position and rich, fruitful land, Sicily has rightly been viewed as a jewel in the Mediterranean since antiquity. In spite of these natural advantages, the history of Sicily has not been blissful. Rarely have the native Sicilians been able to direct their own affairs, and like the Promised Land in the Middle East, Sicily has for the most part been dominated by the stronger powers surrounding her. Greeks, Carthaginians, Romans, Vandals, Byzantines, Normans, Arabs, Spaniards, and Italians, have all come and gone on Sicily's shores, leaving their own bits and contributions to Sicilian culture without ever fully dominating it. Although this has made Sicily something of a cultural melting pot, it has also left the island scarred with the memory of centuries of dominance by foreign empires. Save for brief periods during the Greek regime of Syracuse in the early 500s BC and the Norman Kingdom of Sicily in the 1100s AD, which, by the way, would be worth a podcast series in and of itself, since it is one of the enthralling yet forgotten stories of history, Sicily has historically proved to be little more than a valuable bargaining chip. In the words of the historian John Julius Norwich, though Sicily is one of the richest islands of the Mediterranean in promise, it has also proved over the centuries to be the most unhappy. Even at this early point in our story, Sicily contained a patchwork quilt of peoples and cultures. Like we saw last time, The western portion of the island had been long held by the Phoenicians, who established coastal colonies such as Motya and Panormus. Around the 600s BC, these Phoenician colonies would come under Carthaginian authority, giving Carthage control over a large chunk of western Sicily. Later, the fortress city of Lilibaeum, near present-day Marcella, would be a Carthaginian stronghold and center of operations. True to form, these Phoenician colonies had a complicated yet profitable relationship with the indigenous Sicilian peoples, such as the Elameans, who, like the Romans, were supposedly refugees from Troy, and the Sicils, a group who had migrated from southern Italy. But the only people that could truly rival the Carthaginians on the island were the Greeks and their cities in Magna Graecia. Magna Graecia was the term for the Greek regions in southern Italy and Sicily. And Greek influence in the Italian peninsula can be seen as early as the 1400s BC during the Mycenaean age. Even after the Mycenaean collapse, Greek colonies were continuously spreading throughout the Mediterranean. Some of the more famous of these colonies would be the city of Massilia, modern-day Marseille in France, Tarentum and Regium in lower Italy and Syracuse and Sicily. At this time, Greece was made up of independent city-states, the most famous of which are Athens, Corinth, and Sparta. These city-states were autonomous little kingdoms and fiercely independent, often fighting each other in countless wars and skirmishes and only banding together in emergency situations to resist powerful foreign invaders such as the Persians. Constant warfare, coupled with innate restlessness, meant that there was always a steady supply of Greek exiles, mercenaries, traders, and adventurers streaming out of Greece, and these founded colonies from the Atlantic Ocean to the Black Sea. Besides their penchant for quarreling, the Greeks had a curious way of viewing themselves as a people. Being a Greek was more of a cultural than a national identity, and the ancient Greek world was more of an idea than a strict ethnic group. Hellas, the ancient name for the Greek mainland, was obviously the main source of Hellenes, or Greeks, but the Hellenic world extended throughout literally every corner of the Mediterranean Sea. People of mixed Hellenic and native stock were still viewed as fully Greek, while even people who didn't have a drop of Greek blood in their veins were considered Greek if they spoke Greek and embraced Grecian culture. Not to say that the Greeks had an egalitarian society of equals. Anyone who was not a Greek was automatically a barbaros, or barbarian, a Greek word meaning the exact opposite of the title citizen, which was the penultimate term for belonging in the Greek world. Apparently, the Greeks made this word up to describe how they thought other people's languages sounded, since to the Greeks it sounded like the foreigners were constantly saying bar bar, similar to our English term blah blah. In fact, Barbarian in Greek is often used to describe how other peoples had such incomprehensible languages. Although this may sound a smidge snooty, the Greeks were an equal opportunity name-caller, and they called the Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Persians, Egyptians, and Romans, all highly sophisticated and civilized empires in their time, barbarians. Curiously, the Romans, who had an almost ridiculous cultural inferiority complex, Seem to have taken the Greek name calling to heart and modeled many, but not all, of their cultural institutions on Hellenic models, proving that words really do hurt even world conquerors. Unfortunately for the rest of the world, the Greeks were that annoying guy at school who both talked a big game and backed it up. Greece produced some of the most brilliant and legendary scholars of all time in all fields, including science, philosophy, physics, mathematics geography, history, and a host of others. Some names that an ancient Greek apologist could drop would be Plato, Aristotle, Archimedes, Pythagoras, Ptolemy, Hiero, Hippocrates, and Epidocles of Acragus, who accidentally fell into Mount Etna during a scientific field trip. Greek writers and authors also dominated the scene. And it is often due to the works of men like Thucydides, Strabo, Herodotus, Xenophon, Plutarch, and Polybius that we know as much as we do about the ancient world. Of course, there are also the famous poets such as Homer and playwrights like Sophocles and other numerous examples of Greek intellectual prowess. Lest we end the list making prematurely, let us remember that Greece also produced famous statesmen and orators such as Demosthenes. Pericles, and Lycurgus, the founder of Sparta who starved himself to death because he liked his laws so much. If any of you are a dusty delver like me and want to learn more, these names should give you enough to get started. Now, in case you haven't noticed, I have a penchant for military history and especially historical armies. However, if you do not love talking about historical weapons and tactics like myself, Feel free to skip ahead to where we pick up with the first Greek settlers in Sicily. Not content with merely excelling in these other fields, the Greeks were also foremost in military thinking and tactics for nearly 500 years between the 8th century BC and the 3rd century BC. The pinnacle of this Grecian innovation can be seen in the hoplite, the citizen-soldiers of the Hellenic world. The hoplites were the mainstay of the armies of ancient Greece. Their name derives from the word for their famous circular shield, the hoplon, also known as the aspis. Although almost every able-bodied male had to serve in the military in a city-state, the hoplite ranks were typically filled out by middle-class citizens who could afford to supply their own equipment. This equipment included a bronze muscled breastplate or a lighter linen breastplate known as a linothorax. Surprisingly, linen armor is often very effective in dissipating the force of blows and guarding against missiles, while being both cheaper to make and cooler to wear. In addition to his breastplate, a hoplite would have a bronze helmet that often fully encompassed his head, as famously exhibited in the very popular Corinthian helmet, which is the helmet we most often see in depictions of ancient Greek soldiers. Other helmet varieties were used besides the Corinthian, though the Chalcidian and Attic helmets being other popular models. I would recommend you look up a picture of these helmets, since they are often intricately decorated with beautiful metalwork. The hoplite also wore bronze greaves, but his most renowned gear was his hoplon shield. This shield was approximately three feet in diameter, and consisted of a layer of wood overlaid with bronze. The shield's large size meant that it could cover the hoplite from his shoulder to his knees rendering him virtually impregnable. The hoplite also benefited from the revolutionary design for the grip of the shield. Known as the Argive grip, the hoplite would pass his arm through a leather strap on one side of the shield and grasp the handle on the far opposite side. This allowed for the shield's weight to rest along the whole length of the hoplite's arm, distributing the weight effectively while also making it unlikely that it would fall off in battle. The hoplites' offensive equipment would be an 8 to 15 foot long spear called a doru and a small short sword known as a ziphos. The spear would have points at both ends, the larger one at the top with a smaller one at the bottom, mostly used for anchoring the spear into the ground. These spear and shield citizen soldiers were also renowned for the formation they fought in, the phalanx. Beginning around the 8th century B.C., the Greeks organized their hoplites into a spear wall 8 to 16 men deep. The large hoplon shields would be presented to the front, with each hoplite partially covering his comrade with the left side of his shield. The first rank would level their spears at the enemy, holding them either overarm or underarm as the situation demanded, while the next few ranks would project their spears through the gaps between the front rank. This would present a nearly impenetrable wall of spears and shields to the enemy. Once the phalanx engaged the enemy, the back ranks would push with their shields against the backs of their comrades in front, exerting pressure on the enemy line while also keeping their own lines steady. The back ranks would also hold their spears at an angle to deflect incoming missiles. Once an opportunity arose, the Greek commander would issue an order for the athismus a maneuver where the phalanx advanced a number of steps in unison, ideally breaking the enemy line by concentrated force. If the enemy did rout, support units such as the lightly armed skirmishers and cavalry would pursue them and cut them down. Although the phalanx was a phenomenal formation when coupled with the formidable defensive qualities of the hoplite, it had several downsides. Notably, The formation could only be used to its maximum potential on flat ground, since in rough terrain the phalanx would break apart and make the individual hoplites vulnerable. Similarly, the weight of the hoplite's equipment and the necessary focus on coordinated, methodical movements made the phalanx less flexible and adaptable to the often rapid changes on the battlefield. The flanks and rear of the phalanx were also often weak spots that an enemy could exploit since all the effort was put into the forward momentum. The right side of the phalanx was particularly exposed, since there the last men of the line were not covered by anyone to their right, and thus were only partially shielded by their own hoplon. Due to this danger, the right side of the phalanx was often seen as a place of honor on the field, and the majority of the time, the most elite troops were placed here. The hoplites' heavy gear could also be a downside. Especially in retreat. Oftentimes, a fleeing hoplite would have to throw away his shield in order to escape a lost field. Thus, returning without your shield was seen as one of the highest dishonors in the Greek world, since it meant that the hoplite had deserted and left his brothers behind. This is also the source of the famous saying Spartan mothers would tell their sons before sending them to battle return with this shield or upon it, meaning either return victorious from the battle or die before deserting. Regardless of these inherent weaknesses, the phalanx formation was the embodiment of the Greek ideal of selfless devotion to the city-state. Each man stood shoulder to shoulder with his family and neighbors, trusting his defense to his brother on his right while covering the man next to him with his shield on his left. The whole formation was designed to subvert individual heroics to the will of one unit, And stern discipline and a high degree of mental toughness was required to fight effectively in such a formation. Long after they had ceased to be at the cutting edge of military technology, the hoplite citizen soldiers were still seen as the epitome of Greek courage, manhood, and citizenship. The hoplites and their phalanxes allowed the Greeks to have a disproportionate influence on Mediterranean battlefields compared to the size and population of Greece at this time. Greek armies scored notable victories against much larger foes, such as the Persians in the Battles of Marathon and Thermopylae, made famous by the last stand of Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, of which Zack Snyder's 300 movies is a perfectly historically accurate version of events. Insert sarcasm here. Seeing the effectiveness of the phalanx, many non-Greeks soon adopted the formation, including the Carthaginians and the Romans, who armed and equipped their citizens in a similar manner to the Greek hoplites around the 7th and 6th centuries BC. Many Greek captains also served as mercenary hoplites overseas. The Greek phalanx would predominate on Mediterranean battlefields until the rise of the Roman legions in the 3rd century BC. With this backdrop of the hellenic world before us, we come back to Greek Sicily. Like I mentioned earlier, the first Greeks to visit Sicily were likely connected with the Mycenaean civilization of Crete in the fourteen hundreds BC. Later, as Greek colonies were being established along the coast of Magna Graecia, a group of Corinthians led by a nobleman named Arceus founded a settlement called Syrico on the southeastern edge of Sicily. The name was likely chosen since it was similar to that of a nearby swamp. The original settlement was on an island barely a hundred yards from the shore known as the Ortigia, which, though it was surrounded by the sea, had a lively spring of fresh water. Fun fact, the spring supplied the British Admiral Horatio Nelson's entire fleet with water in 1798. In the coming years, Ortigia would contain the Syracusan ruler's palace, fortress, and barracks. Syracuse itself had one of the greatest harbors in the Greek world. Ortigia lies directly across the mouth of the harbor, leaving only a small entrance for ships. However, directly behind Ortigia is a large bay that cuts a deep scoop through the land. This allowed for large numbers of wharves and shipping to operate along the shore, quickly turning Syracuse into a bustling trade port. Indeed, Syracuse was probably one of the few harbors that could come close to rivaling the magnificent natural bay at Carthage. Syracuse was ruled by a number of Greek tyrants during its early years. The term tyrant does not necessarily mean that these rulers were all cruel or oppressive. It was merely the name used for the despot, or dictator, of a Greek city-state. In 485 BC, Gelon, a former cavalry commander who was now Greek ruler of the nearby city of Gela, seized power in Syracuse. An energetic and ambitious ruler, Gelon made Syracuse his capital and transplanted large groups of people from nearby settlements to his new city. Although a capable ruler, he seems to have been something of a snob. Thucydides remarks that he thought the common people were a most unpleasant body in the state. Despite this snobbery, Syracuse prospered under Gelon's rule, becoming extremely wealthy and powerful. Gelon also raised a large mercenary hoplite army, possibly as high as 10,000 men, and in conjunction with the army of his ally, Theron of Acragus, used it to conquer or subdue the majority of Greek Sicily. Although Gelon was very chummy with Theron, even marrying Theron's daughter Demeretta, he was not on the best terms with the rest of the Greek world. Threatened by a massive Persian invasion in 481 BC, Athens had sent out ambassadors to all the major Greek cities requesting aid against the barbarians. When these envoys arrived in Syracuse, Gelon replied angrily that they had not come to his aid when he had requested it against the Carthaginians, and now they wanted him to drop everything and come rushing to help them. Nonetheless, he said, he would be happy to help with 28,000 men and 200 ships if only they would make him supreme commander over either the Greek army or the Greek navy. When the envoys predictably refused and left in a huff, Gelon sent ships to Delphi in Greece with a large quantity of gold to await the result of the conflict. If the Persians were victorious, he instructed his ships to give the gold to Xerxes, king of the Persians, as a present along with assurances of Syracuse's loyalty. But if the Greeks won, the ships were to sail back home. The Spartans under Leonidas fought a heroic last stand at Thermopylae, while the Athenians destroyed the Persian fleet at Salamis, sending the Persians packing back to Asia. So, Gelon's ships hurried back to Syracuse before word got out. The mainland Greeks were not the only ones who had beef with Gelon. The Carthaginians viewed his aggressive expansion throughout Sicily with growing concern as Gelon threatened their interests and settlements on the western coast. Historically, Carthage had allied with several of the surrounding non-Greek peoples, including the Etruscans of Italy, in an effort to contain the Greek colonies. Many Phoenician settlements had already come to blows with the Syracusans and others before. And Carthage had by this point taken on the role as protector of Phoenician colonies in the west against the aggressive expansion of the Greek colonists. So, when Torelius, the Greek tyrant of Himera, invited the leading Carthaginian general Hamilcar of the Magonid clan to aid him against Gelon, Hamilcar jumped at the opportunity. Hamilcar was willing to help for more than mere political considerations. His mother was a Sicilian, and he was a close personal friend of Tyrillus. Over the next three years, Hamilcar methodically gathered a huge army, which Herodotus claims to have numbered 300,000 men, though this is doubtless an exaggerated figure. Hamilcar's army consisted of primarily Carthaginians, Libyans, and Greek mercenaries, who were armed in the same manner as the Greek hoplites, and fought in the phalanx formation. Additionally. The Libyans likely supplied large numbers of chariots and charioteers, while Gallic and Spanish mercenaries fought with sword and buckler in four eighty b c Hamilcar embarked his army and sailed for Sicily, battered by a storm along the way. Hamilcar lost most of the ships carrying his chariots and horses, undeterred. he landed at Panormis, modern-day Palermo, and spent three days reorganizing his force after this. He marched along the coastal roads towards Hamira, intending to reinstate Tyrillus to his former position. Theron, Gelon's ally, met Hamilcar's army near Hamira and delayed his advance until Gelon could arrive with his well equipped and veteran mercenary army. A fierce battle began, and while the fighting was happening, Hamilcar offered sacrifices to Baal for victory. However, the Carthaginians were worsted in the battle, and Hamilcar, seeing his men flee the field, threw himself into the sacrificial pyre in a very Dido-like fashion to avoid the shame of defeat. The Syracusans then burned the Carthaginian ships which had been pulled up onto the shore, leaving the Carthaginian survivors with no escape. Gelon captured huge numbers of Carthaginians and large amounts of plunder from their camp, while only a few bedraggled survivors made it back to Carthage to give the terrible news. Hearing of Hamilcar's defeat, Carthage was in a state of panic following the Battle of Hemera. Fearing that Gelon was now going to attack the capital, the citizens were called to man the walls while a large deputation of leading Carthaginian senators were sent to Syracuse. There, they concluded a peace treaty with Gelon, in which they paid a huge indemnity of 2,000 talents, or 150,000 pounds, of silver. Gelon would later use this money and the prisoners of war he had captured at Himera to construct massive building projects in Syracuse, including the famed Temple of Athena. Herodotus reports that the Battle of Himera took place on the same day as the decisive naval battle of Salamis, where the Greeks overcame the Persian fleet. This has given rise to some speculation that the Carthaginians and Persians were acting in concert to attack the Greek cities but no concrete evidence has been found to support this. So the First Sicilian War ended with a resounding Carthaginian defeat. For 70 years after the Battle of Himera, Carthage left Syracuse alone to trade and fight with her neighbors, focusing instead on internal reforms and her North African holdings. But Carthage did not forget, and she wasn't done with the tyrants of Syracuse yet. Next time, we will see how the fortunes of Carthage and Syracuse played out on the idyllic shores of Sicily. Until then, take care and read more history.